Jared, I'll do it. You're listening to Here's the Catch with David Lombardi, Matt Barrows, and Dennis Brown on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'll start with this. I don't think a team has ever done as much as the 49ers did in this past draft on days one and three, yet done absolutely nothing on day two. It it was an eventful, but it was also a really, really weird draft. Just to recap, on day one, the 49ers made two trades and they drafted two players who they expect to be immediate starters and Javon Kinlaw and receiver Brandon Ayuk. Then they just completely sat Friday out, so no picks, nothing in rounds two and three. And then they came back on day three, which was Saturday, and had a flurry of a day. It was crazy. I mean, first they traded for Trent Williams, an elite left tackle. Then Joe Staley announced his retirement right after that. He's a franchise legend. That was obviously a huge deal, something we'll talk about a lot today. And then they made two more deals. They traded Matt Breida and Marquise Goodwin away so that they could make two more picks a little bit higher up in the fifth and the sixth rounds. And that was all before they brought in a very polarizing, interesting receiver in Jawan Jennings in the seventh round, who at one point from one service, PFF, this year, had gotten a first-round mock draft grade. They got him in the seventh round. And there's reasons why they got him in the seventh round. We'll talk about all that. But that's just a summary of a wild two days that the 49ers went through. Because that third day, which was day two in the draft, that had nothing. But days one and three, guys, those were very, very exciting to the point where my friend texted me yesterday and he said, can we talk about how the 49ers just casually pivoted to another elite left tackle to replace Joe Staley and nobody's talking about it? Because so much other stuff happened after that. So uh, I think that just to put everything in context, we need to circle back to Joe Staley retiring because that's the guy who played for 13 years through seven head coaches. That, to me, you know, in context was the biggest deal out of all this. He deserves that respect. Joe Staley leaving the game of football, but uh, we obviously have a lot of memories from covering him. So Matt, yeah, I mean, you've covered the 49ers for a long time. You covered the entirety of Joe Staley's tenure. And I think that sets the biggest backdrop for all the change, all the activity that we saw this weekend. Yeah, there's so many memories. He's been on so many teams. And um, the thing with Joe Staley is that he was with the 49ers through those very, very high moments, the highest moments. You're at the Super Bowl. And he was also on some just terrible teams. And when he came into the league, they started him at right tackle. And I remember one of the first guys that he had to go against was Michael Strahan. And as you would imagine, at that point in his career, Strahan was at the very top. And Joe Staley was a rookie. And Joe Staley learned a lesson that game. But he got better and better and turned into one of the best tackles in the league. And the one thing I wanted to remember here is that uh, everybody remembers those ugly, ugly incidents involving Jonathan Martin and Richie Incognito and that Miami Dolphins offensive line. Well, the team that Jonathan Martin went to after the Dolphins was the 49ers. And Jonathan Martin was welcomed. And there was just a, a stark contrast between the the awfulness that had happened in Miami and the welcoming, warm nature of the 49ers locker room in the offensive line room. And it was Joe Staley who sort of set the tone for that and the other guys on the line as well. But he was the captain of the offensive line by then. You know, that's a big reason why that locker room, everybody talks about how great that locker room is. And Joe Staley was the tone setter. He was 
the biggest guy. He was the alpha in that room, and he's the reason why it had that atmosphere. So there's all the -the on-the-field stuff that uh, he deserves all sorts of accolades for. But to me, it's what he did, uh, his personality, his sense of humor, all that stuff kind of made that team, I think, the way it was last year. And and everybody commented on it at one point or another. Dennis, what what are your thoughts about uh, Joe Staley? Everything you said is spot on. You know, Joe Staley, when when you talk about professionals and true professionals he embodies all that and I can remember when Joe first came to the to the team and and seen him at that press conference holding up the jersey with with Patrick Willis and I'm not a big fan of offensive linemen but I could see that there's something different about this cat and he's proved it over 13 years uh, with the 49ers and like you said peaks and valleys I mean he's he's been to the highest and he's been to the lowest and, you know, for some reason, he's always kind of had a positive attitude, you know, even when the team was was bad and he was you know, going through coaches and different coordinators and different offensive line guys. Um, he was always super positive and, and he was always deeply involved in the community, the 49ers Foundation, the 49ers Academy. He was always at all the events, he and his wife and his children, and, and he was always all about the 49ers. And he's so lucky First of all, he, he had an opportunity to play for just one franchise, and then he was able to kind of call when it was time for him to go. And as a former athlete, former football player, I understand where he's coming from. And, and he had a lot, of, a lot of injuries the last couple seasons, and I can understand the pain and, and also understand the frustration. And it seems like to me, he had a conversation with the organization, management, and they were able to, to kind of say, hey, you know, what you going to do? We kind of waited a while for it. I was kind of wondering about it. But it seems like they came, they had a good conversation, and he decided that it was time for him to kind of reinvent himself and do something else because of some of the injuries. This is a tough game. It beats you up. If you can sit down and say, it's time for me to quit and do it in a way with an organization that is as smooth as this was, these are things you kind of want as an NFL player. So, you know, thanks, Joe, and uh, all the best to you. In Staley's statement on Saturday, he said that he was dealing with a deteriorating neck condition over the past year, that it was the most challenging and difficult season for him, uh, both on the football field and personally because of the physical issues he was dealing with on the field that he was bringing home. So that's why he retired. And anytime you hear deteriorating neck condition, that doesn't sound good. So We wish him the best. You know, he only played six games this past year in the regular season for the 49ers, which uh, shows you how much he was battling through. But you do have to tip your cap. When Joe Staley was playing, I think outside of that game against Seattle, when he he admitted that he had, you know, returned a little prematurely, he was still a top five pass protecting tackle. And, you know, we all know how fast Joe Staley is. I can't say this enough. We might have just witnessed the retirement of the fastest offensive tackle in NFL history. There's not a great way to scientifically measure that, but Joe Staley ran a 4.640 at lineman's weight. He ran a 21.9200 before he was lineman's weight in high school. And Matt pointed it out yesterday. I pointed it out, Dennis, I'm sure you're familiar with the play. It's the iconic Joe Staley play against the Saints in the January 2012 uh, divisional playoffs. He is sprinting ahead of Alex Smith on that sweep for a touchdown. Alex Smith is not a slow guy. Staley 
was just barreling out in front of him. I've never seen a lineman move that fast. And the numbers that Staley put up, I think, imply that that he's at or near the top in, in the history of the NFL as far as speed of an offensive lineman go. And because of that, he was so adaptable from regime to regime. I mean, he went through two Nadirs and two peaks with the 49ers. Mike Nolan, Mike Singletary, Jim Tom Sula, Jim Harbaugh, Tom Sula again, Chip Kelly, and finally Kyle Shanahan were his coaches. And he fit into every single one of those schemes to the point where Shanahan cleaned house when he came in, right? I mean, hardly anybody stayed behind for too long. I guess Jimmy Ward was able to. But offensively, Shanahan brought in his own guys. Not only did he not want to replace Staley, but Staley was essentially the prototype for what Shanahan would want in a tackle, right? Because he was so fast and he was so good in that outside zone. So I think the longevity, Matt, the fact that he fits so well with so many different coaches and then even at the end of his career was a Shanahan prototype, I think that says something about Joe Staley. Yeah, you don't get a, a, a sharp a contrast as you do when you think of a, a Mike Singletary-led team, just, you know, blunt force trauma versus a, uh, a Chip Kelly or, or a Kyle Shanahan team. And you're right, the Joe Staley fit perfectly in both. I mean, we always talk about how athletic he is, which is absolutely true, but he's also a really strong guy. I mean, he was there, the team's weight room king for the last, I don't know, five to 10 years or so. So I mean, he's a guy that could move his legs, but he could also move people with his strength. He's stronger than I think a lot of people think he is. He's not just sort of a finesse guy, but yeah, all of that is is absolutely true. And it's funny that, you know, for years and years, we described him as the longest tenured 49er. Now the longest tenured 49er is Jimmy Ward. Jimmy Ward and Kyle Nelson, the, uh, the long snapper, both came in in 2014. You don't really think of those guys as 49ers like you did Joe Staley. So there's a big leadership void that needs to be filled, not just with Staley, but uh, also with DeForest Buckner. I mean, those guys could have been one and two in terms of uh, leaders in that locker room. Buckner was certainly the leader of that defensive line group. So some guys are going to have to step forward. And I think there's some really ready-made candidates there, including Mike McGlinchey and George Kittle, who both Really did some nice tributes yesterday in a very short amount of time, which I think says a lot. But I think as a 49er fan, you would be very heartened to see how some of the teammates reacted to that. But Dennis, in your experience, who do you think kind of steps into that void without Buckner and Joe Staley being there anymore? There's two kind of components to it. You talk about the guy in the locker room and the guy on the football field. And I think they've kind of addressed on the football field with getting, you know, Trent Williams to kind of back him up. But when you talk about leadership in the locker room, you know, that's yet to be seen. I mean, that's that's a different type of person. We're football players. We play football. And it's easy to kind of judge, you know, how do you replace somebody, what you do on the football field. But I think with Joe Staley, what's going to be missing is that leadership component. And that was huge when you talk about McGlinchey. I mean, I think his development was all because of, of a Joe Staley and on the defensive line. I mean, that defensive line, I think DeForest Buckner was, a like you said, he was a big part of how that group came together with, you know, that leadership of, of D Ford. But, you know, you get Bosa in there, you got DJ Jones and, and those guys. I mean, it was important to have that leadership. So you can replace performance on the field yet to be seen yet. But, you know, Trent Williams looks like a guy talking about a pro bowler kind of guy, but we don't know what type of guy he is in a locker room. I'm sure the organization has done their research 
he's going to fit in the locker room fine. I'm sure Javon's going to fit in the locker room fine. But, you know, you just got to, you're going to miss that leadership part of it. And, and when I was in the league, it was Guy McIntyre, Steve Wallace, Bubba Paris, Michael Carter, Kevin Fagan. Those are the guys that helped develop that position. And I think that's what's yet to be seen. But the work has been done and you're going to see how they come in and how they kind of bring their groups together. Well, as a team grows up, you have to pass the torch because you know retirements and football are part of the, the situation, right? You, injuries, retirements, age. Richard Sherman's not going to be around forever for that defense, and he's been a very vocal, binding leader of that group. So the hope is that you draft the younger personalities that could eventually develop into leadership roles. And I think in the context of Joe Staley, we can't forget Mike McGlinchey. And we can't forget the fact that Mike McGlinchey followed a nearly identical path as Joe Staley, except 10 years behind him. I mean, you're looking both guys who started as tight ends, but uh, moved into tackle roles under the same college coach and Brian Kelly, and then guys who became best friends with the 49ers because their personalities actually jived so well. So that's why I'm looking at Mike McGlinchey right now. Joe Staley has retired, but McGlinchey is now going to be entering his third year. He's a Super Bowl starting right tackle now, so he's not you know some kind of new kid on the block. He's, you know, already fielded questions from the media in a very professional way for two years. But now a lot of that leadership burden, at least in the offensive line room and maybe for a larger roster perspective from Joe Staley is now going to shift to a guy like Mike McGlinchey. Hopefully for the 49ers sake, they have picked the right personality. And it was no accident that there was a lot of similarities to Joe Staley's upbringing when they picked Mike McGlinchey in the top 10. And now they hope that he delivers that same kind of veteran presence in the locker room. So if we want to expand this to how this whole draft worked, Matt, the 49ers did a lot of that plug-and-play replacement mentality in this draft, right? They wanted to keep as much of the gang together as possible, but that's never 100% possible in the NFL. You're always going to have a couple casualties here and there. So for the ones that they did suffer, you lose... Emmanuel Sanders, right? You lose DeForest Buckner, who was another pillar in the locker room. They brought in Javon Kinlaw at the tackle spot, and they brought in Brandon Ayuk at that receiver spot. And they hope that these guys have the personalities, maybe not to lead right away, but to fit in and to grow as leaders while slightly older guys take the torch left behind by guys like Staley and Buckner. We have to just note how remarkable it was that they were able to do that. There were three major losses in the offseason. And these are these are huge. That's what we've been talking about. Just what a figure Joe Staley is. What a figure in the locker room and on the field DeForest Buckner was. What a big help to this team Emmanuel Sanders made. And the guys who are coming in aren't going to replace them right away. But they brought in logical pieces to fill those gaps. And that was that was huge. You know, the whole balancing act that they really had to pull here when they knew that Joe Staley was retiring when the draft began. And so they're sitting there at pick number 13, and there is an offensive tackle, Tristan Wirfs from Iowa there, that they could take. But they were confident enough that they instead could get Trent Williams, obviously, two days later. But they knew enough, it seems, and still kind of had to fill in some of the gaps there. But they seemed to be confident enough that they could get him, that they bypassed that big-ticket, huge position, left tackle, at 13, and instead got the defensive tackle, and then got the wide receiver, and then two days later traded for Trent Williams. Uh, You have to give them credit. It was a masterful way of doing this. We'll have to see 
whether these guys work out. I think they're obviously confident in Trent Williams, just given his track record. But it was a pretty impressive feat that they were able to accomplish because these are giant positions that are missing from a Super Bowl team that thinks that it can go back to the Super Bowl. So that was impressive in in my estimation. Yeah, and it just shows. I mean, you know, John Lynch coming in as a general manager for the first time, but it feels like he kind of understands it. He kind of gets it. And there's no trades made until that first round when the 49ers start, you know, trading back getting draft picks and then, you know, trading draft picks to come back up and to get the positions or fill the positions that they lost in free agency and during the offseason, so in trade. So it seems like John Lynch kind of gets it. And and then when you see what he did with with Trent Williams, and I feel like this Trent Williams thing has been kind of in the works for at least a year. Uh, Last season, their Super Bowl season, there was talks about Trent Williams coming to the 49ers. And I think they've been kind of working this whole thing. And, and, you know, nothing's ever leaked about Joe Staley's retirement, his status or anything. And and I just feel like John Lynch and, and being on the same page with Kyle Shanahan, they figured it out. And it looks, you know, on paper right now. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I would give this draft an A because I think what they've done, you know, collecting picks, trading back up, trading out, getting back in, bringing in Trent and going out and really addressing the needs that the team needs. It's impressive to me for John Lynch, a guy who has had never done this before. Well, they said yesterday that they did make a couple inquiries into Washington for Trent Williams last year. But the problem then was that Bruce Allen, GM regime, was still around. And obviously, that was not a group of people that Kyle Shanahan got along with. So Shanahan was familiar with Trent Williams, having drafted him with his father back in 2010 and having coached him from 2010 to 2013. So it was obviously a player that he would like to redraft, which he essentially did. But it just didn't seem possible with that old regime. So the fact that Ron Rivera came in to Washington, former Carolina coach, and started running stuff this offseason, that changed the entire dynamic, right? Because all of a sudden there was a little ease in the communications between Washington and the 49ers that hadn't existed before because of the Shanahan effect and the fact that his tenure there with his father did not end up on good terms. So that heated up the Trent Williams talk. But what I found really interesting yesterday was that John Lynch said that the 49ers really risked it, guys. He he said that Ron Rivera kept on saying, yeah, well, it sounds like we may have a good deal for Trent, but why don't we wait until tomorrow? And he was kicking the can down the road over the course of the past week to the point where the 49ers had a feeling that they would be able to close this deal, but they weren't 100% sure when that first round rolled around. So they actually gambled by not taking Tristan Wirfs and by instead you know, using the pick on Kinlaw and then using more capital to get Ayuk. And the gamble ended up paying off because they were able to later get Trent Williams. And Matt, you know, if I'm reading in between the lines here, that's a huge gamble, obviously, because this is left tackle. This is a very important position on the football field. But I think that the, the fact that the 49ers have Dan Brunskill on their roster and the fact that he succeeded during his time at both left and right tackle last year, I think that gave them enough courage to gamble in this situation. There might have been a 70 or 80% chance that Trent Williams was coming. I think that the 49ers felt okay about that 20 to 30% risk 
because they have a guy that's already played that tackle position well on the roster. So I think that helped them bridge it and confidently move forward. And because they risked it, fortune favors the bold. It all worked out for them. They may have gotten a big assist from Trent Williams, too, because for weeks and weeks and weeks, the line was Trent Williams is probably going to get traded to the Minnesota Vikings. That was, you know, Trent Williams' destination. Vikings, Vikings, Vikings. And all of a sudden... The Vikings were off the table. So something happened there where the the Vikings were no longer feasible. And uh, there have been some reports denied by Trent Williams and his agent. We should note that Trent Williams put the kibosh on going to Minnesota. But it seems as if Trent Williams liked the idea of coming to San Francisco. and, And why wouldn't he? He's familiar with the head coach. He's familiar with the system. And, oh, yeah, the 49ers were just in the Super Bowl after trouncing the Vikings in the playoffs. So I think he realized who the the better team was. But your point is well taken. They've got a lot of tackle options, not just Brunskill, but Justin School, Sean Coleman, whom they were very high on last year before he broke his ankle in the preseason. And then another thing that Kyle Shanahan noted was that if they didn't get Trent Williams, they one of their options was to go a little bit higher in the draft and, and get uh, McKibbitz in the in the fourth round and give him a shot at left tackle. So they've got a lot of uh, different options at the tackle spot. Obviously, none of them are nearly as good as Trent Williams, but I think the hope is that one of these guys is going to really emerge as one of their tackles for the future because Trent Williams is only signed for one year. Um, this is a little like Emmanuel Sanders last year, where you might be renting the guy for only a year and you give away draft picks and is sort of kicking that problem down the road a bit. They've got a lot more tackle, at least possibilities, than most teams in the league. And we're going to have to see how this plan plays out. Yeah, and you brought up McKivitz. He's an interesting guy. I mean, I know he's a tackle, but if you if you talk to him, it sounds like he kind of wants to play a little bit of guard. But he fits into this offense and this scheme because he's super athletic and he's very versatile too. And, you know, he's a wild guy. I mean, he says that, you know, he gets into brawls. He plays with a chip on his shoulder. He can do a lot of different things and he's very athletic. I saw him on some tape last night and, you know, his feet aren't the quickest. But he's really good uh, as far as manipulating his body, getting in front of guys. And like I said, he's very versatile. And he can play up and down the offensive line. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, how Kyle kind of uses him, if he's going to use him inside or if he's going to back up one of these tackle positions. Right now, for the immediate one year, Trent Williams is going to play on the final year of that Washington contract, which is a $12.5 million base salary. The 49ers don't have to worry about his original signing bonus for cap purposes or anything, that's all on Washington's responsibility. They only have to worry about the $12.5 million. So Joe Staley was going to cost $11.5 million. They do have to worry about $1 million more of signing bonus money that's you know still counts against the cap. So that means the 49ers will only save $10.5 million out of the Joe Staley retirement. $1 million goes to dead money. In essence, Trent Williams is $2 million more expensive for 2020 than Joe Staley would have been. So that created a little bit more of a bind for the 49ers financially, 
which uh, meant that it was important to start, you know, <laughs> really working on making sure that they could free up some money elsewhere. And that's where the Matt Breida and Marquise Goodwin trades came in. With Breida, they saved $3.3 million. With Marquise Goodwin, they saved $3.7. So that's $7 million in total savings. And the 49ers actually, when they came out of everything, uh, had $1 million more in cap space than they did when they started the flurry. So they went from 11 to $12 million, which gives them a little bit more money to work on the George Kittle extension and all this and all that. But the reason reason I talk about the finances now is because it's a good segue into all the other moves that the 49ers uh, executed. Let's start with the Brita one, Matt. I thought that the, that's an example of good business because with Matt Brita, he's undrafted. You don't spend a draft pick on him back in 2017. He gives you some good production over three years, but then he's hardly playing to close 2019. And because of his speed, because of the fact he was the fastest ball carrier in the NFL last year, I think they're able to get a fifth round pick out of him from Miami. So you're able to manufacture a draft pick. It's like buying a stock and then selling it after the value's gone up. And they were able to use that fifth round draft pick on a lineman and Colton McKibbitt. So it's one of those situations where the 49ers buy low, they sold a little bit higher. And that's, I think, how they're going to continue to try to do things, especially at the running back position. They brought in a couple of uh, undrafted free agents in Jamichael Hasty and Savon Ahmed from uh, Washington. And they hope that those guys can fill Breida's role and potentially, you know, make the team and in the future be worth uh, a little bit more than, than what they got them for. Yeah, I'm, I think they're hoping that either Hasty or Ahmed becomes basically the 2020 version of, of Matt Breida, an undrafted running back who comes in and really earns a roster spot right off the bat. And yeah, they got a, a fifth round pick for him. And fifth rounders for this team are really valuable. That's the George Kittle, Dre Greenlaw round. And uh, we've been talking about Colton McKivitz. So I was asked to pick out the sleeper pick for the 49ers this year. And one of the things that we did on The Athletic. And so McKivitz was the easy choice for that because uh, he is the fifth rounder this year. And who knows, uh, we've just been talking about how many offensive tackles they have. Maybe that position becomes the one that they can kind of deal for extra picks in the future because they do seem to have an abundance of uh, of those types of guys right now. So, yeah, that was, you know, when we're talking about the, the kudos that this team needs to have, I think dealing Greta and Goodwin are in that category. They didn't get much at all for Marquise Goodwin. They basically moved up 20 spots in the sixth round. And then they got uh, Charlie Warner, the tight end from Tennessee, who probably would have been available at their former sixth round pick anyway. But your point is well taken. It's the salary cap savings that are big with both of those moves and probably will be big when we start talking about the, the George Kittle deal that still has to be coming down the line here. So that was really impressive to see them kind of cash in two guys that weren't a big part of their future plans into draft picks. Dennis, what else kind of caught your eye among the the players that they brought in or among the moves that they made over the last three days? I think about Matt Breida and, and what an interesting career, a 49er career that he had. He just kind of came on the scene. I think, you know, no one really knew what he was about or who he was. And he kind of exploded on the team and, you know, the cheetah and, you know, he had a big explosive play kind of guy, the fastest guy on the field type of thing. And then he kind of fell out of graces. He had some ball security issues. Then you didn't see him, especially last, se last season at the end of the season. You really didn't see him. He was on the sidelines. And of course, he had some injuries too. 
And now you're you're able to go and get some draft capital for him, and he moves on with his career. But he's just kind of bursted on the scene. And the 49ers, you know, had a really deep running back room, and you know, you still have Tevin Coleman on the on the roster. You got Jeff Wilson Jr. on the roster, and Jarek McKenna re-signed, you know, an extension. So it's still a very talented backfield, and you know, Juice is back there too. But then you bring in the guy from the kid from Washington, and you know, kind of see what he can do. But Again, that was impressive to me that a kid like Matthew Breida can come on to this team and, and make such a huge impact and kind of fade away and then you're able to to get some capital for him. And then I think the Marquise Goodwin thing, I think the writing was on the table, especially when they got Brandon in the first round. And they really didn't get much for him, but still it's it's something that you can go out and and, and do something with. So again, I think John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan did a fantastic job addressing needs and then having a very good draft, I think. Yeah, the, I think the fact they were able to offload that uh, Marquise Goodwin contract for something, even though it was only 20 spots up in the sixth round, is saying something. And, you know, well, I mean, both Brita and Goodwin had put enough on film in the past to warrant some value on the trade market. For Goodwin, he almost had a 1,000-yard receiving season in 2017 and, and probably would have surpassed that had he uh, not taken that uh, personal foul cheap shot play from, yeah. from Blake Countess on the Rams, you know, and he – he got knocked out, taken out on the stretcher in that game. So that was uh, that was a scary moment that that cost Marquise Goodwin a milestone in his career. But I think the film from that season, when he was the featured guy for the 49ers down the stretch, uh, you know, retained some value for him moving into into uh, this draft and all those trades yesterday. And obviously, Matt Breida, the the speed speaks for itself. But the 49ers, they were so heavily invested in the running back position. Uh, no team had spent more money and more of its cap space on running backs than the 49ers, who are at $20 million total for running backs entering yesterday. And it only made sense to cut that down to the $16.7 million because they saved the $3.3 uh, by trading Matt Breida. So they'll try to get that production from, from the cheaper guys. We'll see what the undrafted free agents do. But just makes sense in, in football terms, especially the way the league's going now. You invest more in receivers than you do in running backs. And I think the 49ers are shifting that way because they invested a lot of draft capital in receivers. We talked about Brandon Ayuk on our podcast the other day. So we're going to focus on the other guy right now, guys. Uh, Jawan Jennings out of Tennessee, six foot three receiver. The one physical knock on him is that he ran a slow 40. He ran 4-7 in the 40. But... You turn on the film, and this guy is a yards after the catch. We'll call him a yak monster. I mean, he is just shedding defenders, throwing guys off of him, diving into the end zone with you know four defenders draped on his back. It blows you away when you watch the film. Kyle Shanahan went out, called him a bulldog yesterday, which uh, you know I thought was a very apt description of Jawan Jennings' film. And the 49ers were able to land this guy in the seventh round after Pro Football Focus had mocked him to the first round in January, other services were mocking him to the third and fourth round later on. Dane Brugler, our guy at the Athletic, had a fifth round grade on him. The 49ers, I think, by almost any metric there, uh, got some value in the seventh round with Juwan Jennings. Yeah, and that's that's the key word, value. I mean, and that's what uh, that's what they did with the, one of the deepest wide receiver drafts in recent memory is that they got a wide receiver in the in the seventh round who's probably would have been a uh, more of a mid round guy in any other year. And um, I thought it was funny that Shanahan, when he was asked about Jennings, said uh, this guy could play linebacker if he wanted to. And then Lynch got on. He said, Yeah, this guy could play safety if he wanted to. So 
John Lynch, the former safety, that's the best compliment that he could give a, an offensive player, is that if he was on defense, he would be a safety. Yeah, just one little anecdote from Juwan Jennings, who reminds me when I watch him, he, he's got a little bit of Anquan Bolden in him. He just gets angry when he gets the ball in his hands and, and likes to kind of smack into people. Well, he got really angry at the end of one particular play last year where he and a Vanderbilt player went out of bounds and then he got to his feet before the Vanderbilt player did and stepped on the guy's face and uh, was suspended for a half of the uh, the next game, which was the Gator Bowl for Tennessee. But that did not seem to bother Lynch and Shanahan one bit. I mean, they kept talking about this guy's fight, this guy's fire. His attitude. Yeah, his attitude when you're a seventh rounder, that's what you need to have. You need to kind of, uh, you know, show up and show out. And it seems like this guy has that, and it just kind of fits that mentality that, you know, George Kittle, Debo Samuel has established. Uh, Jalen Hurd certainly has that potential. We haven't seen it. But boy, if they have all of their guys ready for this season, this is going to be a team that with a receiving crew that likes to block downfield for the running game. And once they get the ball in their hands, by the end of the game, boy, these defensive backs are just going to be sick and tired of dealing with this crew all game. And, and that seems to be exactly what Kyle Shanahan is trying to build on offense. So long to the fleet-footed guys. He wants guys that, you know, bring a little smackdown. Dennis, you must uh, you must sort of like that defensive mentality. Yeah, you want guys that are aggressive. I think that's one of the things that maybe Dante Pettis needs to kind of develop a little bit, a little bit of dog in you. You have to have a little bit of fight in you, and you kind of really have to kind of get after it. And that's good to have on the field if you can contain that type of thing. I mean, it, when it becomes... You know, when you're hurting the team is when it's not good. And the example you use, you know, him getting suspended is things that you don't want on the football field. But you do want, you know, you want a guy that's out there that, especially during training camp, you want some guys out there that are going to challenge some people. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, not only his skills, but they, I think that's one thing that kind of drew John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan to this kid is that, you know, he's got a little fight to him. We want to see. We put him out there. He wants to compete. And, you know, as a seventh round draft pick, you have to compete. If you want to make this team, if it's special teams or whatever it is, you want guys out there that kind of want to compete. And, you know, you want that feistiness, but you don't want that stuff that's going to hurt you. And, and we're talking about Trent Williams. I don't know if you guys remember, but him and Richard Sherman got into it oh, yeah. a couple of yeah. years ago. So, you know, we'll see kind of how that works out. But you, you, know, you want guys with fight. You want guys, you know, to play this sport, you have to have a lot of dog in you. If you don't have a lot of dog in you, you're going to get bit and you're going to get kind of exposed on the football field. So I think he brings to this, brings to the table is, you know, he's not the fastest guy, he's not the best receiver, but dang it, he's going to compete. And I think that's what they like about him. Yeah, back in 2012, I believe it was, Seattle was playing at Washington in the playoffs. Comeback win for the Seahawks. Richard Sherman was mic'd up for the whole game, and he was talking a lot of smack the whole game. He was th Richard that was, Sherman. Yeah, I mean, but that was still when he was on the ascent. <laughs> on the ascent, right? That was before they won the Super Bowl. So he was extra loud back then. That was when he was really mouthing off because he was trying to get his name out there, and he he bugged some of those uh, some of those Washington guys. They got pissed off, and by the end of the game, in the handshake line, Trent Williams had enough, and he was chest to chest with Richard Sherman, and. I think if it's on YouTube, I think he was saying, I'm going to hit you in the face. I think he warned him before he did oh, it. He hit him. Yeah. And he, then he and, hit him. No, and then he did. But Sherman, he was not about <laughs> to back down. Sherman was going chest to chest with him and then he hit him. 
And they were joking about it. They were they had a back and forth on Twitter yesterday. So it seems yeah. that all is well. Um, cooler well, heads good. have prevailed over the years. So now they're going to be teammates. You know, that follows in the vein of Pierre Garçon being a Richard Sherman teammate in 2018. Pierre Garçon and Sherman got into it as well. And there was also a war of words between those two guys after a game where Sherman was uh, talking about how overrated or something Garcon was. But then they were teammates and actually locker room neighbors for uh, 2018. So stuff smoothed over, and and I'm sure it will between Williams and Sherman. And, and you know, one thing that you guys j- just mentioned, you're talking about these late-round draft picks. Um, this is some a big theme of the draft, potentially the primary theme of uh, the last day of the draft, is that the 49ers have an extremely deep roster this year. That's how you make the Super Bowl. You have to have a good roster. And they're keeping most of the guys. It's not like they're holding a fire sale right after winning the NFC Championship game. That means, by definition, that there's just not as much room for newcomers to enter the picture of the 53-man roster. And Shanahan and Lynch talked about that being one of the big challenges of the final day of the draft. They wanted to acquire three players who had a very good chance of making the team, even though that was going to be really hard this year. And they feel that they did that because they feel that uh, a guy like Charlie Werner, for example, the tight end, they don't have a guy on their roster right now in that role outside of Daniel Helm, who was on the practice squad most of the last year. They lost Levine Toilolo and Garrett Selleck. So they think that Werner is going to be able to fit into that blocking tight end role. And they also think he's an excellent special teams player. They think that McKivitz is going to be one of the, what, eight, nine, or 10 offensive linemen that makes the 53 man roster because of his versatility. And then we talked about Jawan Jennings. That receiver room, it's interesting because you don't know who's going to be healthy and who's not. But they say that Jalen Hurd's been cleared. There's a chance that Jennings swoops in there as the big slot, maybe kicks Richie James off the roster, or the chance somebody gets hurt and he fits in there. And all of a sudden, Matt, the 49ers have a 6'4 Jalen Hurd and a 6'3 Juwan Jennings, and that receiver room looks a whole lot bigger than it did last year. Yeah, they could hit you with either mini Trent Taylor in the slot or Jalen Hurd in the slot or maybe even Juwan Jennings in the slot. But the point being is that there is a lot of competition in that wide receiver room. And Dennis is right. I mean, uh, some of this is a challenge, I think, to Dante Pettis. That um, his roster spot is no longer guaranteed, which it was basically the last two years. And it's going to force him to reach a level that he hasn't reached yet. But it's clear that Kyle Shanahan thinks that he can. That's why he drafted him high in the second round a couple of years ago. I'm not saying that they drafted Juwan Jennings with Dante Pettis in mind, but uh, I think that that's going to be one of the the storylines, one of the subtexts this year, if we ever do have a training camp, it's that can Dante Pettis push himself to the point where Kyle Shanahan knows he can get to, but really hasn't consistently been there. If that happens, then... You would have, uh, you know, not just Brandon Ayuk as a real kind of special guy on the outside, but Dante Pettis would be as well. And that would be maybe a surprise to some people, but certainly a pleasant surprise that the 49ers would, would gladly accept. So it's a much more full wide receiver room than it's been. And that's exactly what they're shooting for. And that's what a good team aspires to. So that's got to be a position group that does better as a whole than it's done the last couple of years or so. Yeah. And let's not forget about Trent Taylor. I mean, we haven't seen him in a while, but, you know, he's a guy that they have high expectations in that slot position. And he's in that room still. And he's going to come off an injury. And and Jalen Hurd, I mean, 
big expectations. And Brandon Ayuk, he also returns kicks. He's got a return game. So you're exactly right. Dante has to, I mean, he's going to be challenged again in this camp. Last training camp, he was challenged by Kyle Shanahan publicly. But now again, you got a, a guy, a first round draft pick, and you know, he's got some talent. Kendrick Bourne's in that room. And we know what Debo has done. So it's a good problem to have. And you kind of kind of see who's going to rise to the occasion and who's going to be on the field and who can put some good productive tape out there and, you know, be part of this, this strong receiving crew. Essentially every single position group that we thought uh, would be stocked with some new talent was stocked with new talent, except for the secondary, which was mildly surprising, but the 49ers decided to stand pat there. Their track record of not drafting a corner or a defensive back before the third round stays put. They didn't draft a single guy. They did bring in two safeties and a corner in undrafted free agency, but still the same potential issue moving forward looms. They're still going to have four starters playing on expiring contracts, barring any extensions this offseason in 2020. So we talked about this before the draft. We thought the 49ers might try to address that position preemptively so they could start grooming some guys. Maybe some of these uh, undrafted free agents are future prospects. We don't know yet, but this is going to be interesting next year. And it leads me to believe that the longer term plan, Matt, is for the 49ers to do some big re-signings next year. I think that their behavior this offseason showed that they're anticipating a nice salary cap raise next offseason and that they're probably planning to do some investment in that defensive backfield and re-sign guys like Kwan Williams, you know, resign either Emmanuel Mosley or Kello Witherspoon, depending on if one of them delivers a nice year this year. And who knows, maybe Richard Sherman will continue playing really well. I think the folks that are saying that he looked terrible for 10 minutes of a Super Bowl are looking at a tree and not the whole forest. I mean, he put together a great full season. So maybe Richard Sherman will be around for another year or two. Who knows? But I think the 49ers are planning to pump some money into that secondary since they didn't pump any draft picks into it this year. Yeah, um, before the draft began, somebody asked about the secondary to John Lynch, and he, I don't know, he he sort of rambled a little bit, but then uh, concluded by saying, we have a plan there and we're going to stick to it. Well, the the plan obviously didn't involve the draft, so I think you're right. I I think that's going to come in free agency next year, probably with their own guys, but maybe with, with outside players as well. And, and I would throw the question back to you. Now got you know Trent Williams playing on a on basically a one year deal. We've got all these secondary figures you know needing to be resigned. Is it realistic to think that they can do all of those types of moves next year, given the salary cap restraints that they had this year? It depends on what the salary cap actually is, and there are projected increases up to two hundred forty million dollars, and it's only one hundred ninety eight million dollars this year. And it's going to be so interesting because the world economic situation will actually dictate this. But it may actually help the size of the salary cap because TV may explode over the course of the next year if everybody's staying inside or if the consumer is afraid to head in person to a sporting event and would rather watch it on TV. I've seen some speculation that these new TV deals may be bigger than ever, even if the economy is struggling because in-home entertainment is going to be the the next huge thing. So nobody really knows for sure right now, but there is a chance that this could go against conventional thinking and you're like, oh, the economy is doing bad. The, the cap won't go up as high. It could be 
the very opposite just because of the very unprecedented, unique world situation that we're in. So if the cap does skyrocket to something like $240 million, all of the 49ers moves this offseason make sense. They've been backloading contracts. They've been, you know, kicking the can down the road as far as something like the secondary is concerned. If they get a $42 million cap increase, they can go ahead and sign, you know, most of their needs next offseason and be set. So I think they have taken a calculated risk in that regard. I think they do have a plan, like you said. John Lynch uh, said that he had this past week, and and I think that uh, the situation next year financially will determine if uh, they were right in, in taking that risk or not. So anyway, to, to wrap it up, Dennis uh, already gave the 49ers an A grade on this draft. Matt, I, I want to hear your grade. Well, I'm not going to be as soft a grader as Dennis is. <laughs> a, come on, easy A, easy A, Dennis Brown. Um, uh, I'm going to give them a B only because they gave away so many of their their draft picks. And I know that uh, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan ha- have said that they don't have very many openings on this team. But, you know, they were able to find guys, as you noted, David, in McKivitz, Warner, and Juwan Jennings, who have legitimate shots of making the team. And I think if they had drafted in the third or the fourth rounds, uh, they could have done that as well. So they gave away a lot of their picks last year in the D Ford trade, in the uh, Emmanuel Sanders trade, and then Moving up to get Brandon Ayuk, they, they gave away a couple of picks as well. And, and I realized that they defended those moves and they've got good reasons for doing that. But it left them pretty barren in this draft. And, and we saw that, only five picks. So I'm going to go with the, uh, the steady B grade. <laughs> Sounds like you give them an A, really. You want to give them an A. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Three years Three years later, it might turn into an A. I look at this draft the way that I think Kyle Shanahan does. He was talking about this, I think, on Thursday night. He's basically looking at it as we got, this is what he said, we got Javon Kinlaw and Brandon Ayuk in the first round. We got D Ford in the second round, right? That was the trade with Kansas City. We got Emmanuel Sanders with our third and fourth round picks, and that's the one that value TBD, right? He only played half of the season for the 49ers, and and you spent essentially two picks, although they did swap the fourth and the fifth. And they got Trent Williams and McKivitz in the fifth round, and Williams for a fifth round pick, obviously, even if it's just for a year, seems like a good deal for a Super Bowl contender. Then they go into the sixth round, and they find the replacement for Selleck and Toilolo and Werner. And in the seventh round, they get a potential really high upside guy in Jennings. So, you know, out of all that, if it turns out that the young receiving core is very mature and veteran this year, thanks to Emmanuel Sanders' presence last year, thanks to his tutelage, Boy, that could be an A plus in in retrospect. But right now, the price for Emmanuel Sanders does seem a little steep, especially since they didn't win the Super Bowl. So, looking at this draft holistically through all the wheelings and dealings of you know the past year plus, I have to say B plus. But it could raise to an A plus if the 49ers win the Super Bowl on the heels of a veteran receiving core next year, and if D Ford stays healthy and all this and all that. You know, the jury's still out on this draft, but I think that the initial returns are promising. And let me just add this before we go, and we were talking about Trent Williams, and when you talk about this guy, you're talking about probably the best right tackle in the National Football. He didn't play last season, but this is all honors to Joe Staley, but in my opinion, this is a better player than Joe Staley that you got. Yeah, well, he's younger. I mean, you're going from a guy that's yeah. going to be 36 to a guy that's 32. You talk about how fast Joe Staley is. Well, Trent Williams is a physical athletic specimen of his own. You know, he's 20 pounds heavier than Joe Staley. I think 315 as opposed to 295. Doesn't run much slower. I mean, this was a 4840 guy coming out 
of Oklahoma, and you watch him, he's really tossing people around like ragdolls. So yeah. I think you're right. This is an elite player. We have to see what the year off did, but Shanahan seems to think that he'll be fresher and better for it. So that's the big question. That's also the big question with Ayuk and Kinlaw. How are these guys going to play in 2020? And that's going to answer a lot of our evaluations. So yes, sir. Yep. it's fun. It's fun. Uh, good job, guys. This was a lot of fun to talk about. We went long this time, but I think all of the happenings deserve for us to go long. For Dennis Brown and for Matt Barrows, this is David Lombardi. Talk to you guys next time on Here's the Catch.